0: Um, If you don't realize, today is our quarterly community gathering where we will do the refuges and precepts together in a little bit and uh, not our normal 11 to 12 noon sit. And I really have appreciated um, these quarterly gatherings over the last several years we've been doing it. Just the time to publicly, as a community, um reorient our lives or just remind ourselves about the direction or the orientation or or our aspiration for our lives. And I'm sure, like me, you understand how easy it is for us to be disoriented and confused about um, what's valuable, what's not so valuable. And in terms of the specific Buddhist tradition, there are two ways to do this. And it's both an or a reorientation, but also a kind of commitment ceremony, like saying what we value. And we do it usually in the form of acknowledging, and acknowledging that we find the three refuges, refuges. Like, kind of clarifying, well, what do we mean by the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha? So, we're really uh, together as a community recognizing how valuable awareness is. That, you know, it's, it seems like too obvious to even say. But if we don't say it, we just assume we're being mindful and aware in life. And actually, we're just the opposite. We're just lost in thought, caught up in habits. So, this is what we mean by Buddha that we're acknowledging the value. Of awareness of mindful attention and we take refuge in Dhamma so this is to remind us that the appropriate way to live is not to deny the way it is but to actually acknowledge this is how it is and to turn toward it not to think that our life situation is a mistake I mean in some cosmic scheme of things we don't know whether things are mistakes or not mistakes But what we can know directly is that it's skillful to turn toward our life as it is, as opposed to to turn away from our life, even if it's frustrating now or difficult, painful, to do our best to turn toward our lives, to acknowledge this is how it is, to kind of live in the truthfulness of that, well this is how it is now, this life situation. This is how the mind is. This is how the body is. This is how the life situation is, the place where I'm living and breathing, and people I'm interacting with. This is how it is now. And we together take refuge in sangha. That in the course of human history, men and women have learned some, have have developed some skill about how to how to. Uh, toward how to wake up to awareness and how to learn how to be more fully in their lives and we can learn from them. This is what Sangha means. And sometimes the Sangha is right next to us. The person right next to us has some wisdom that we can pick up on. The other part of this ceremony or this recitation is the five precepts where we're it's uh, it's kind of a more primitive but essential part of spiritual practice. You know, a lot of people don't like it because it, it's based on this idea of danger. You know, like, it's dangerous to act out some of our mental conditioning. <laughs> so, we together, you know, acknowledge the danger of our habit energy and say, I don't want to go around harming other people because I don't want to live in that world where we're harming one another. I don't want to go around stealing things that aren't mine because it's not the world I want to live in. I wouldn't feel comfortable in that kind of world. I don't want to live in a world where I'm misusing my sexual energy or harming with my sexual energy or lying or intoxicating the mind in a way that I'm oblivious to how it is. I lose the clarity. And today I thought I'd spend just a few minutes uh, looking at this fourth precept of speaking truthfully or not harming with our words. And maybe partly because of the political season that we're in. But I think even in a bigger way, uh, it just seems so clear how much suffering in the world has arisen is arising because of the lack of commitment to speaking truthfully and how easy, easy it is to use half-truths you know, to spin things, to try to use our words for our own advantage or for somebody else's advantage. This is one of the ways the Buddha defined right speech, is that we're not using our words for our own advantage or for somebody else's advantage, but we're using our words to speak the truth, to take care of all beings, to take care of all beings by uh, having a commitment to truth. I especially like uh, some words by Bhikkhu Bodhi, a well-known American Buddhist monk and uh, prolific translator, And he was commenting on the Buddha's Eightfold Path in a book that we've used a number of times here at the Center for courses. And in that book on the Noble Eightfold Path, he's talking about right speech, and he says, By their very nature, lies tend to proliferate, lying again to defend defend our credibility, to paint a consistent picture of events. So the process repeats itself. The lies stretch, multiply, and connect until they lock us into a cage of falsehoods from which it's difficult to escape. The lie is thus a miniature paradigm for the whole process of subjective illusion. In each case, the self-assured creator, sucked in by his own deceptions, eventually winds up the victim." And I notice this when I do develop the stomach to listen I find it easier to read news than to listen to it. But when I actually listen to either the newscasters or the people that are in the news, I I see this, I think, where uh, it seems like someone's not speaking the truth, but it also seems like they're totally taken in by their own (laughs) lying. You know, that they're as convinced as anybody that what they're saying is true, even though it seems apparently not true to me. And I think this is, you know, we have to, it's easy to see in others, but to kind of realize that we're caught in the same net where we start to believe what we say. And, uh, And then it just, it kind of, we get disconnected from truth. and. And by truth I don't mean some absolute thing like this is the truth, and this isn't the truth. The truth probably as it you know to define it is much more of a a process of discernment so uh, as important as anything in speaking the truth or this commitment to right speech is a uh, humility like we don't know the truth, so what we're committed to is a An exploration of what is true what is right what is skillful as opposed to feeling like we have to be in a hurry to get there it's really a commitment to the process of uncovering what is true and the the means to that uncovering is the humility it's not thinking we have the whole truth it's basically making the other assumption that we don't have the whole truth And maybe, even better, we can never have the whole truth. That kind of keeps us in the game of uncovering, of listening, of looking deeply, of questioning. In the same passage, uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi, he goes on, he says, Wisdom consists in the realization of truth. And truth is not just a verbal proposition, but the nature of things as they are. To realize truth, our whole being has to be brought into accord with actuality, with things as they are, which requires that in communications with others, we respect things as they are by speaking the truth. Truthful speech establishes a correspondence between our own inner being and the real nature of phenomena, allowing wisdom to rise up and fathom the real nature. Thus more than an ethical principle, Devotion to truthful speech is a matter of taking our stand on, re- on reality rather than illusion. On the truth grasped by wisdom rather than fantasies woven by desires. One of the things I think we can notice as we just reflect on why speech is... Uh, it's really energizing, because when, when we both value the importance of seeking truth, or being clear, being direct, and also the flip side of that is understanding the danger of when that begins to fall away, so then we, we, we feel this commitment to truth-seeking, and speaking the truth, and this uh, quality of listening, it kind of pulls us into the moment more so that we're full of care like to not misspeak, to not say more than we know, to not let our own fear put a spin on what we're saying, so that we're kind of protecting ourselves or, you know, somehow convincing others of our greatness in some obvious or not so obvious way, we're kind of pulled in with this vigilance or this uh, interest or energy of, like, knowing we're we're sort of always teetering. I mean, even right now, even though it's not likely I or someone else is going to stand up and say something really unskillful, we can always feel like, we're just a few words away from doing, making some huge mistake. And, you know, although none of us have weapons probably or nuclear arms, we do have this power to speak. And uh, we can do quite, we have, of course, done quite a bit of damage with our words over the years. And so just to kind of have that sense that we're walking around with this this really powerful, amazing, and dangerous instrument, you know, our words. And not to become neurotic, I mean, that's not the point. We want to be neurotic and always worrying and, oh, why did I say that? And But to just appreciate the truth, which is, words can be used and are used as weapons, consciously or unconsciously, all the time. And even things are done that are very hurtful, And the person speaking is maybe oblivious. But being oblivious is just another form of aggression. Like not paying attention to the consequences of our words or actions. It's just another form of ignorance or aggression. Just like acting it out in a more obvious way. Acting out aggression in a more obvious way. That a lot of harm, you know, when we look at suffering in the world a lot of that harm has been caused by aggression but a lot of it has been caused by the aggression of people not paying attention people just thinking or well, this doesn't matter and in uh, not paying attention and not speaking up and not taking necessary steps all kinds of violence happens Uh, that a number of us wish, you know, before the Iraq War, that maybe we had been a little bit more vocal, a little bit more assertive in our sense that this war doesn't seem so necessary. And just think, you know, how much suffering possibly could have been alleviated. But we were busy, you know, I'm speaking for all of us, you know. We all felt, you know, either busy or... It wouldn't matter, or, you know, all kinds of things. And I I don't know, you know, I don't know if it would have made a difference. But all I know is the people, you know, who could have but didn't stop that, we bear some of the responsibility for what's going on. part of right speech is you know uh, coming with or right along with this humility which is more like a quiet another way of talking about that is a moral sensitivity so we may not know what we should say or what is right speech or what is wrong speech but we can over time with practice a sort of intuitive sense of moral sensitivity it's like we just have this sense of how how these words play on our heart, like what the intention is behind the words. Are we being just frivolous? Is there some underhanded way of insulting somebody or getting even or trying to get, manipulate the situation to our advantage? And all of this, of course, is playing out somewhere. I mean, if we have unskillful intentions, these intentions are playing out somewhere that we can actually learn to be sensitive to. So I, I often use the word the heart, just as you know, giving that location a word, a name. So we call it the heart. We learn to be sensitive to the heart. But what I mean is that we're sensitive to the skillfulness or unskillfulness of whatever we're doing, or thinking, or saying. And this sensitivity, it's always here and now. And it isn't that we have to figure it out. It's much more direct than that. We're not figuring out whether what we're about to say is skillful or not, or what we're doing is skillful or not. But there's a, almost a visceral way of feeling whether what is about to happen, or what's alive in us, or what just did happen, whether it's supporting a constricted heart. You know, a movement into darkness or ignorance or self-centeredness, or whether we're about to say, do, or think, is enlightening, is liberating, is freeing up the heart. It sort of um, heart feels more buoyant and nimble and responsive, not constricted. The opposite of that. I remember an interesting situation back in maybe '88 uh, started, I think. But uh, I was part of a spiritual organization, one that I think, generally speaking, was you know had a lot of integrity and I really cared about being morally sensitive. But there was something that really raised red flags for me. It was like I noticed this sensitivity. And what they did, everyone, including the main teachers of this organization, you know, who I really respected as wise people, they had this gimmick of when they, this is still when long distance phone calls cost money. Now it's so inexpensive to make a long distance call. So instead of making, uh, just calling across the country and finding that person wasn't there and then wasting the money for the call, they would do a collect call, but they had this sort of arrangement that whenever you get a collect call from one of the other centers, because there was a whole network of centers around the country, you'd always, there would, I forget what it was, but you'd tell the operator, no, that person isn't here. But you, you'd say it in a way to, so the other person would know that the person was there. And then the person would call direct, because it was a lot cheaper than calling collect. And um, we were all expected to do this. And of course, when you get a call, you were expected to sort of follow the protocol so that the the other people would know whether, you know, the person was there or not. (coughs) And uh, this just didn't feel right to me. (laughs) And and I didn't want to, it wasn't that I kind of wanted to make this big show of being, you know, holier than thou, but I really felt uncomfortable doing it. And uh, I really felt uncomfortable having to say this to these people that I worked for and I was living and working and teaching at these different centers for a number of years and uh, it was really hard to kind of say you know I don't want to do it because it sort of screwed things up it screwed up the system (laughs) and of course the thing is especially people who are who have a spiritual practice they just assume that they're morally sensitive and so you know we have our justifications for our behaviors right now we all do And this is the important thing about moral sensitivity is that it comes with this humility so that we're always discerning. We're never assuming that, okay, finally I got myself on the right side of the equation. What I do is wholesome and skillful, you know, and I don't have to worry about it anymore. So it's not like we stop that ongoing discernment. We're always, basically, we're always observing the heart. We're intimate with the heart. And so we're noticing whether if what we're about to do or what we are doing or what we've just done, we're noticing whether that is causing the heart to get tied up in knots or whether it's letting things untangle a little bit, freeing up the heart. And the Buddha has this beautiful sutta. Many of you have probably read it or heard it because it's so well known. But uh, the basic... uh, set up for the story or for this discourse the Buddha gave was uh, his young son, You know, he left right after his son was born and became a spiritual seeker and then after a number of years, after his awakening, his deep insight and he was teaching, he wandered back through the place where his son lived, his wife and son and uh, as he was there in that kingdom, his wife, his former wife said to his son, go to that guy and collect your inheritance (laughs) So the little boy, he was like five or six at the time, went to the Buddha, who by then was already a famous teacher, and said, you know, I'm here to collect my inheritance. And so the Buddha made him a novice monk, and a little six-year-old boy or whatever. And uh, a year later, when they were practicing some other place, the Buddha showed up to where Rahula, his son, was and uh, sat down to sort of connect with the son and give him some teachings, some instructions. And uh, it was sort of traditional because they were walking barefoot that when an uh, elder monk showed up or elder nun showed up, the younger or less senior nuns or monks would wash the feet. It still happens today in monasteries where the newer monks would wash the feet of the older monks. And so the Rahula washed his dad's feet. And then the Buddha, he rinsed it off and the Buddha held up like a little scoop with just a little water left in it. And he said, do you see how little water there is in this little scoop here, Rahula? And Rahula said, yes. And the Buddha said, well, just so. That's how morally bankrupt a seeker is when they're willing, when they can justify telling a deliberate lie. And then he throws the water out and he says, see how empty this is? (laughs) And Rahula says, yes. This is how kind of off track a seeker is if they can justify telling even one deliberate lie, and then he tips it upside down He says, "You see how this is turned upside down? You know, this is the life of a seeker who can justify a deliberate lie. You know, even in jest." And then uh, he does. He shows him how empty it is. He says, "Look inside. See how hollow, empty this is. This is how your life will be if you can justify telling a deliberate lie." And then he goes on and tells Rahula, That if you can justify, sort of misspeaking the truth, not speaking the truth, you can justify any moral transgression. And this this seems true. It's like uh, it is. I know it's sort of a cliche, but it's a slippery slope. If we can, you know, if we're willing to cheat, AT&T, you know, why not cut corners here or cut corners there? And this is always how it begins. You know, we we start to feel like ends justify the means. Well, we're a good organization, a non-profit spiritual organization. You know, we don't have a lot of money. That's a big evil corporation. They've got lots of money, you know. We're not really lying or, you know, it's it's a white lie. So it's so easy to justify these things. And the Buddha didn't leave it there with his son. He... He, he instructed him. He asked Rahula, do you, do you know what a mirror is for? And the, Rahula said, yeah, for, to, to reflect things. And the Buddha said, yes, just so. So they, then he taught him. Maybe I'll read just this paragraph because even though he's speaking now to a seven-year-old, it's really useful instructions for us. And it really speaks to this humility and this moral sensitivity, like being able to detect the effect on our heart, like what we're about to do, what we're doing, what we've done. What was the effect or what is the effect on the heart? So I'll read it in terms of a verbal act, but the Buddha went through this same process three times for bodily acts, for verbal acts and for mental acts. Whenever you want to perform a verbal act, you should reflect on it. This verbal act I want to perform, would it lead to unskill would it lead to self affliction? to the affliction of others, or to both? Or is or is it an unskillful verbal act with painful consequences, painful results? If on reflection you know that it would lead to self-affliction, to the affliction of others, or to both, it would be an unskillful verbal act with painful consequences, painful results. Then any verbal act of that sort is absolutely unfit for you to do. But if on reflection you know that it would not cause affliction. It would be skillful. It would be a skillful verbal action with happy consequences, happy results. Then any verbal act of that sort is fit for you to do. Then he goes on to, while you're performing a verbal act, right? And if it's unskillful, then you abandon it. If it's skillful, you can continue with it. And then after the fact, he says, you know, you do that same reflecting. You're reflecting on your heart. Does this have an unskillful... Aftertaste, or is it skillful? And he says, if it's skillful, that um, upon reflection you know that it did not lead to affliction. It was skillful. It was a skillful verbal action with happy consequences, happy results. Then you should stay mentally refreshed and joyful, training day and night in skillful mental states. In a way, this is the ultimate empowerment to have the sensitivity, the kind of living and breathing with the sensitivity in the heart. We feel empowered because it's like, to, to the degree that a human being can, we understand how to live. You know, we, The way to live is to be mindful, and to be mindful specifically of the skillfulness and unskillfulness of our intentions, of our mental and verbal and bodily actions because it has consequences. And that's actually what we're feeling in the heart. It's like I read the other week in another class, something Ajahn Sumedho wrote. He said, if you do unskillful actions, you have bad dreams. (laughs) If you do skillful actions, you have good dreams. That's it. I mean, he was sort of summing up sila as this sort of ethical practice. If this is, or karma rather, like this is how it works. So even if nobody knows that you've done something unskillful, even if you yourself are unconscious of it, it doesn't mean it didn't leave an imprint in our hearts. So sometimes we don't realize something was unskillful until years later. And all of a sudden the memory comes up and we go, you know, that was unskillful. And I know it because it hurts. (laughs) We're finally, years later, aware of the pain involved in that action or those words, even though... We might have been in denial at the time. So I'll leave it here so that we have time now for the recitation, and we can uh, reflect on this as we're reciting the references and precepts, reflect on our commitment to this sensitivity and this humility. So it's on page 35 in your books, and you can appreciate all the different covers that the community members did for us, children and adults. Most of us have different covers on our books. So we try to do the refuges and precepts in both a traditional way, but also a way that really allows it to be more than just a ritual, but an actual time for us to reflect on our lives. So uh, we'll be doing the Pali because that's the language people have been doing it in for over a couple thousand years. But then we'll have some time, a few seconds, to reflect on each part. And at those times, Scott will ring a bell. And then a few seconds later, we'll go on to the next part. But during that silence time, when we're just hearing the reverberation of the bell, Take that time just to reflect on the meaning of what you've just said or what we have just chanted together. And when we do the precepts, we need five people to read Thich Nhat Han's commentary for each of the five precepts. So somebody willing to read the uh, comments for the first precept? Patty, thanks. And for the second precept, we want to do some reading Bonnie? Thanks. Third precept. Thanks, Todd. Fourth precept. Thank you, Clint. And the fifth precept, Maria. Thanks. And if you don't know the Pali, don't worry. Just listen and you'll pick it up. It's pretty... uh, I think it's pretty easy to follow along. And uh, a lot of us like to use this hand gesture. It's called Anjali. It's just a sign of respect. And it's not so much we're respecting something outside of ourselves it's really about we're respecting this internal process you could call it like in terms of the talk today a commitment to truth seeking and so it's just a, a gesture of respect and gratitude and if you feel if it feels comfortable feel free to use it as we go through this about 10 minute ceremony so we'll begin with three bells and then we'll begin our homage to the buddha Namo Tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Namo Tasa Bhagavato Sanghudasa, Udang Saralanga Chami, Dhammang Saralanga Chami, Sangang Saralanga Chami, Dutyampi, Udang Saralanga Dhammang Saralanga Dukyampi Sangang Sarananga Chami Tadgyampi Pudang Sarananga Chami Tadgyampi Damang Chami Tadgyampi Sangang Sarananga Chami I take refuge in the Buddha. Trusting inherent peace and freedom of a heart free from clinging. And now the second refuge. I take refuge in the Dharma. Trusting mindful awareness of the way things are. And now the third refuge. I take refuge in the sangha, trusting those with wisdom and compassion who show us the way. And then we'll do the five precepts. So the group will chant both the Pali and then the English, and then one person will read the comments underneath. So let's start with the first one. Panati Pata VERAMANI I undertake the training to refrain from harming living beings. Aware of the
1: suffering caused by the destruction of life, I am committed to cultivating compassion and learning ways to protect the lives of all beings. I am determined not to kill, not to let others kill, and not to condone any act of killing in the world, in my thinking, and in my way of life. This is the first of the five mindfulness trainings I vow to study and practice.
0: And now the second, adinadana, where amani sikkapadam samadhyami. I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not given.
1: Aware of the suffering caused by exploitation, social injustice, stealing, and oppression, I am committed to cultivating loving kindness and learning ways to work for the well-being of all beings. I will practice generosity by sharing my time, energy, and material resources with those who are in real need. I am determined not to steal and not to possess anything that should belong to others. I will respect the property of others, but I will prevent others from profiting from human suffering or the suffering of other species on earth. This is the second of the five mindfulness trainings. I vow to study it.
0: Now the third, Kame midchar Where am the Sammi I undertake the training to refrain from causing harm through sexual misconduct. <coughs> Aware of suffering caused by sexual misconduct, I am committed to cultivating responsibility and learning ways to protect the safety. Of integrity of individuals, couples, families, and society. I am determined not to engage in sexual activities without love and commitment. To preserve the happiness of myself and others, I am determined to respect my commitments and the commitments of others. I will do everything in my power to protect children from sexual abuse and to protect couples and families from being harmed by sexual misconduct. This is the third of the five mindfulness trainings. I vow to study and practice it. Now uh, the fourth. Musawada I undertake the training to refrain from false and harmful speech.
2: Aware of the suffering caused by my, unful, my unmindful speech and the inability to listen to others. I'm committed to cultivating loving speech and deep listening in order to bring joy and happiness to others lead others of their suffering. Knowing that words can create happiness or suffering, I am determined to speak truthfully words that inspire self-confidence, joy, and hope. I will not spread information that I do not know to be certain. I will not criticize or condemn things of which I am not sure. I will refrain from uttering words with the intention of causing division or discord. I am determined to make efforts to reconcile and resolve all conflicts, however small. This is the fourth of the five mindfulness trainings I vow to study and practice.
0: And now the fifth. I undertake the training to refrain from the misuse of intoxicants. Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful consumption. I am committed to the cultivation of good health, both physical and mental. For myself,
1: by practicing mindful eating, drinking, and consuming, I will ingest only items <coughs> that preserve peace, well being, and joy in my body, in my consciousness, and in the collective body and consciousness of my family and society. I'm determined not to use or misuse alcohol or any other intoxicant, or to ingest foods or other items that undermine spiritual such as unwholesome TV programs, magazines, books, films, and conversations. I am aware that to damage my body or my consciousness in such voices is to harm all beings. I understand that a proper diet is crucial. It's crucial for self-transformation and for the transformation of society. This is the fifth of the mindfulness trainings. I vow to study them.
0: then we finish idang ne silam magha falanyana sa tu may my conduct conduce to attainment of the highest fruits of liberation and then we do this traditional sharing of the merit so we just read that last paragraph together taking refuge, undertaking the five mindfulness trainings and practicing the of awareness and insight gives rise to benefits without limit. I offer to share all blessings and merit with my parents, teachers, family, friends, and with all beings everywhere. May this life and practice contribute to the great stream of causes and conditions leading to happiness, peace, and liberation for all beings. May all beings be happy. Sometimes in the past, at the end of someone or a group doing the precepts and wreckages together, they'd add this: "Thus may you know me." So it's like, uh, you know, we've reoriented our lives, and then we actually ask for support by saying, "You know, thus may you know me." So if you see me not living out <laughs> these things, they just, in a kind, loving way, just sort of somehow reflect that back. And uh, the idea, of how it was usually done, is. Then if you blow it, you just find another time to recommit. And generally, this is where the monastic sangha would come in. You'd go to a nun or a monk, and you would say, the, "Do the refugees and precepts with either a teacher or some monk or nun, just to kind of them sort of being the, sort of the witness to your commitment. And you just: start. Thank you for listening.